thanks, thanks. It's summer. It's great to be here. Summer is no school holiday. You can hear children splashing in the pool. It's the time for teenagers to close their blinds and start playing Fortnite. And um, as I always say, summer is a great time to sit and talk about depression and anxiety. And I'm assuming last week y'all did that same thing. Did she announce depression, anxiety? Woo! Did you? I don't. Okay. I was feeling really sorry for myself, and then I clicked on y'all's website and saw David Henderson here last week talking about dementia. So, felt pretty good. Kind of got it worked out. It's always a comparison. But I also should tell you that it is always a little bit odd for me to be preaching. I do a lot of teaching and a fair amount of preaching, but I'm always reminded of how far things have come or how much things have changed. Because when I started my training in the 1980s, there was serious talk about whether anyone who is a Christian could be a psychologist or a psychoanalyst, uh, do any kind of psychology, and should a Christian be involved in psychological counseling and so forth. As a matter of fact, I, my, I had a kind of a crisis, went up to uh, the Boston area where there was a Labrie study center, which was founded by Francis Schaeffer, and kind of wrestled through with the Christians there and prayed through and so forth. Then came back and uh, uh, joined the Menard Meyer Clinic, which was one of the few places then that was trusted with psychology and Christianity. It was a good place. I was actually killing it the first couple of years I was there. And then they hired this guy, Stephen Chalk. And um, he is cool. He, he wore suits and was very professional and so um, <clears throat> my status kind of went down a bit, <coughs> but um, I, sur I survived that. But things have changed now. Now clients come to me, Christians uh, like you, most of you guys or many of you know what, what your love languages are, for example. Many of you know your Myers-Briggs. People will come up and tell me, well, I'm an ENTJ, and I pretend to know what that is. And, and then uh, some of you even know about Enneagram, which is cool because it sounds sort of medieval, but it's actually 1980s. But the point is that people now, uh, Christians, have come a long way from grave doubts to a point really of where we all are kind of more and more psychologically sophisticated. Parents come and tell me about the learning difference that their kid has or the concern about the serotonin levels, things like this that we never used to talk to about. And the, the question of whether psychology and Christianity can coexist really has always been kind of an issue of naming your inner experience. It's funny because some people think that uh, psychology invented the whole observation of inner experience. And I can assure you that long before Freud ever talked about it, there were th uh, people were talking about, Christians were talking about what goes on inside you. Because I want to tell you right now that the purview of what goes on in your head, what your thoughts are, how you feel, is absolutely relevant and critical to your relationship to God. It is not all about psychology. Uh, and again, we didn't invent this stuff. Psychology didn't. You can go back to the 5th century, and many of you know St. Augustine, who said, who can map out the various forces at play in one's soul? Man is a great depth, O Lord. The hairs of his head are easier by far to count than his feeling, the movements of his heart. Christians have known about inner experience for millennia. Remember the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, 
But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You can hear his, his struggle, his inner struggle, trying to come to terms with what is this that's going on inside me. But the risk here is that if we take what's a hopefully a scientific view of what goes on inside you, there is some risk of you, in fact, losing some of the sophistication that you might have. And this is a concern of mine that over the last 30 years, my, I have some concern that Christians, as we've gotten more psychologically sophisticated in ways of describing our inner experience, our depth of spiritual understanding our inner experience seems to be getting a little bit, maybe quite a lot, less and less, less sophisticated. The risk of taking a scientific view of our inner life is this. You should know that there are completely different approaches that science has versus Christianity. For example, when it comes to your personality, your inner life, Christianity, for example, deals with righteousness. There's concern about righteousness and unrighteousness. You should know that psychology doesn't really have much about that. We talk about healthy and unhealthy. That's about as good as we can get. And I'll be honest with you, I get a little nervous with Christians talking a lot about a healthy marriage. We want our kids to be happy and healthy. Uh, oh, and Christian, that would be cool too. And you're like, wait, I think you may be losing track of the priorities here sometimes. Sometimes people are advised that the healthiest thing to do is to divorce because that's good for you. And you see the difference because righteousness and unrighteousness, psychology doesn't have anything to say about that. Christianity talks about what is good and bad inside you. We don't really have that in psychology. We have normal and abnormal. So that if normal is terrible, well, we're cool with that because at least it's, it's the norm. We can't tell the difference in secular psychology. And lastly, Christianity deals a lot with your character. Psychology doesn't really deal with character. We deal with personality. And this is particularly true for those of you who are parents. Because character involves things like truthfulness and uh, being steadfast, uh, being loyal, being uh, caring. Personality is kind of cool too. It involves whether you're, uh, a te what your temperament is, what your IQ is, uh, those kind of things. Those are aspects of your personality. What, what becomes important is that we know that a fundamental aspect of character development is suffering. And most of us as parents are striving like crazy to raise our little sweet, lovely children in a somewhat uh, harm-free environment where they smoothly go through and that they, we hope they're just happy and healthy all the time. And yet at the same time, we know full well that for character to develop, there needs to be and is struggle and, and uh, disappointment and pain. So then what am I doing up here? And before I talk myself off the stage, like, yeah, you're right, you should leave. Um, I, let me tell you the part that I think can be helpful within a narrow scope. I think psychology can be very helpful to us. And one major benefit is essentially diagnosis. That is that people that are good at what I do, I think are very good at observing behavior and listening to inner life and helping to identify and communicate that in a way that is more uh, uh, caring, more sensitive, 
really more aware. You know, when I think about diagnosis, I always think about my cousin. My, we had this cousin that but when we went to visit my grandparents, my brother and I had to occasionally go play with this cousin. Did you have that cousin that you're like, do we have to this? To, yes, he's your cousin. Well, he was a little younger than my brother and me, and he was just weird. He was just always talking and running around, and he had this plastic World War II bridge that his tank went over, and he was, he would, I remember him going, oh, and this is the river, and he ran to the bathroom and got a glass and dumped water on his carpet. You know, we're just, okay, dude, this is, he was just weird. Well, a couple of years later, I'm sure it was because my mother was listening to my brother and me, she said, you know that your cousin has MBD, minimal brain dysfunction. No, didn't know that. And, and then over time, we were told that he had the hyperkinetic reaction of childhood. Okay. Then uh, years later, my mother, who was an uh, education major, told me that he has ADD, attention deficit disorder. And now I know that looking back on it, because we've improved in our observation, I know that my cousin wasn't weird. He was ADHD, primarily, in a, uh, primarily hyperactive, uh, in, impulsive type, which means that he wasn't a jerk. He wasn't stupid. Matter of fact, he's kind of brilliant, making a lot of money. But he was, in fact, very impulsive in his thought and very energetic as a way of focusing. And here's the best part. He also would, I'm sure, qualify as all, uh, uh, autism spectrum uh, disorder as well which means that there were specific, not just his ADD, but also he had real limitations in his ability to socially connect. Well, see, we didn't know that. But we weren't really paying attention, and we hadn't learned over time. Over the last 35, I guess, 40 years of knowing my cousin, he's gone from being a jerk to knowing that he's actually got something wrong with his brain to impulsive to really recognizing the detail of where he really struggles. And that's a good thing. It's a much better reality uh, to, to really pay attention and classify and characterize people's behavior and their thoughts. Now, the other thing it helps with some is treatment. Because, you know, you can do a lot of treatment. Some people forget that one treatment for attention deficit disorder in the past has been a metal ruler across the knuckles. Uh, that, that was effective in, to a degree. Uh, that it did uh, motivate the child to uh, use all your resources to try to pay attention. Uh, usually screaming at the child was accompanied by that. There were, however, some side effects. There was damage to the hand. There was uh, feeling horrible about themselves and hating school with a white-hot hatred. We have now improved because paying attention to what that particular kind of struggle is, we've improved a great deal. Uh, in, in being able to treat and really take care of those things. So here's the deal. When I come to you and I talk to you about depression and anxiety, here's the thing I want to tell you as, as I get to what I'm here to talk about. I can tell you that clinical depression is not the same as sadness. And an anxiety disorder is not the same as fear. Clinical depression is not sadness. An anxiety disorder is not fear, and I promise, if you pay attention, and many of you know what I'm talking about, if you pay attention to people, you can tell the difference. Because often, you'll come to church or someone will talk to you about depression, and they may give a sermon really about sadness, about even kind of melancholy. 
And that's a good thing, but that's not the same thing as depression. And it's definitely true of anxiety, where we talk about worry and fear, but it's not really talking about what is an anxiety disorder. So let me first remind you, when it comes to sadness and melancholy, the kind of blues that we go through, the difficulties, our uh, scripture makes it very clear to us that there is an important sort of treatment for this, and it's called taking every thought captive. What you think about is important, and the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus, who is the Spirit in you, can be kind of energized and fed by really what you think about and what you focus on. Do you know what I mean? Those of you that are older are like, oh yeah, totally know what you mean. Philippians 4 verse 8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you think about is important, and it can make a difference. For example, when you really are discouraged, I often recommend that you practice gratitude which sometimes for me is what I call teeth-gritted gratitude. I'm like, okay, well, thanks. Thanks for the, for the lips to complain with uh, and, and, and for the breath to say the words with. Thanks for that uh, and for my hand doing this. And everything that you have comes from God. He has given you everything so that by the end of it, it's not just a technique to feel better. It's kind of a reality check that might help to pull out of a kind of discouragement that we get in our sinful self-view where we think, I just don't know if I like the life I'm leading. And Jesus going, no, you're leading my life. And I'm happy with it, and so should you. Those are good things to know. And Paul reminds us that in Philippians. And when we go through difficult things, it's important to, as Christians to keep this in, the, in context. In 2 Corinthians 4, he says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction, which was persecution, by the way, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Normal uh, sort of uh, sadness and melancholy can be addressed in how we think through Scripture. This is a good thing. But depression is not that same thing. There are people who will be listening to that who uh, don't have a specific thing they feel bad about. You see, melancholy and sadness, there's always something or things that you're really down about. There'll be somebody in this sermon about sadness and, and uh, melancholy that's going to go, I, I know, I, I know. I, I, don't know, I don't even know why, I don't know what I'm feeling down about. I mean, I feel I have a good family, I, my job is okay, I, I don't, and I have felt this on and on for weeks and weeks. I just can't get out of bed. Friends, that's not sadness. That person doesn't need someone to go, well, just get up. Just, just get going. That only makes it worse. Do you hear the difference? They don't even know what it is. And they have certainly agreed, I want to lift up. I want to do that. But they don't know how. That's depression. Clinical depression includes, includes physical things. There's a point where your body sort of shuts down because if you think about it, depression isn't actually an emotion. It's, an, it's a verb. You depress something downward, and it's using all of your psychological resources just to keep things cool, and what's left is a flatness, a kind of flatness where you're going, hey, dude, you won a million dollars. Oh, but you got to go to jail for a year. That's okay. It's just everything's in the middle. 
And the emotion that you see is usually uh, anger and frustration, which is really a failure of controlling everything. It's just kind of blowing up. You especially see it in children who are not good at holding it together, and so they have constant and often meltdowns. They're never really joyful. They can be silly, but not joyful. Teenagers always describe it as, as tired anger. They'll say, you know, your mom says you're depressed. Do you think you're depressed? No. Well, let me ask you this. Do you, do you ever feel like, like, boy, if I had the energy, I'd be ticked, but never mind? Yeah, feel that all the time. Yeah, that's, that's what we call depression. It's, it's controlled emotion. In those situations, I can tell you that when you sit and just try to encourage them and why don't you go talk to a friend and whatever, I've got people that fully get it. i got kids that will be like, okay, yeah, you're right. And they won't be able to do it. They don't have the, the uh, emotional energy to do it. There's a point when you sink down and you need more than just some kind of encouragement. Two things that really help. One is words. That's my part. Uh, Dr. Henderson was here last week, and he's the medical guy. But my part is the words. And words, being able to really talk through with someone what's really in you and what's going on, helps to put a distance and object objectivity in this thing. And I got to tell you, that doesn't mean everyone needs therapy, which is weird for me to say on tape, but it's true. <laughs> that what you need is a caring person without an, uh, an unnecessary agenda who really wants to know and won't take your little, your sharing and then go, okay, here's what you need to do and just kind of dump the whole thing out. You really need to be, it's basically they need to be loved and talked through. Some of you are good at doing that. Some of you aren't good at doing that, and don't try. If it makes you upset to hear someone's upsetness, then don't, don't get into that. But words can really help. And another thing, and I'll say it right out loud, in serious situations, medicine helps. And the, and the weird part is that people say, well, I, I don't want to have artificial happiness. I have good news. Our medicine's not that great. There's no legal medicine that makes you happy, and the medicine that's illegal doesn't really make you happy. It just makes you intoxicated. What medicine does, it doesn't change who you are. It just gives you, when it works right, emotional energy, just a little more freedom, 3D in your emotion, so that you feel some joy and some sadness instead of everything clamped down. It can be very helpful. I'm not going to kid you. And certainly spending time reminding them, you need to just pick yourself up. For the really depressed person, it's, it's not good at all. There's also such a thing as fear and worry, and that's not the same as anxiety. Fear and worry is experienced in your head. People know what they fear. Some people cling to their fears. I talk to moms a lot, no offense, but moms worry, you know. I had this one lady whose son was kind of fading off a little bit. He was, get this, vaping occasionally as if half of Plano isn't vaping anyway. But, but she was like, she was a, uh, she, I said, do, are, I know you're upset, but do you pray about this? She goes, who do you think is keeping me together? I went, no, it's great. I'm glad you have such peace, you know? Because, you know, she kind of didn't even believe that, okay, Jesus, whatever, but we've got serious stuff here. We've got vaping going on. It's like, okay, you're just hanging on to the fear, and I get that. But there is a different kind of anxiety when you have really um, anxiety. It's not the same as that. It's not in your head. It's much more diffuse. For the worrier, for the person 
who experiences anxiety in their head, you know Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. That's good advice for people who worry and are clinging to their worry and their fear. And by the way, I'm not even going to get, I could go all, it's in my book about fear and what it does to parenting. Because the funny part is, the fearful parent always looks like the more involved parent. It's the fearful parent that you go, yeah, I think I'm going to sign them up for baseball in February. It's the scared parent going, no, if you wait till February. You won't get in. You've got to t- go to the coach's house now in October and kind of give them money. And you're like, wait, but it, it feels like more involvement, more passion, but it's just plain fear. There's no room for that in Christian parenting. But we, it's hard to talk us uh, out of that because at some points we cling to it. There is also a thing that is an anxiety disorder, and that's different. Someone with an anxiety disorder doesn't really know what they're fearful of. It is not fear. They feel it almost in their body. It's like an overproduction of adrenaline. Most of the time, one or both of the parents of someone with an anxiety disorder had an anxiety disorder. It's really hard to see in men, especially men from Texas, because we don't get afraid. I don't get anxious. I'm just just mad. We just get, everything turns it, you know those guys, everything turns into anger. You know, even a funeral, they're like, well, this is ridiculous. He's like, dude, just, it's, it's not all anger. But anxiety is different because it's experienced in your body, and the focus is often irrational. That is the thing that they really do think about, most of you, and if you have an anxiety, you know what I'm talking about. They won't tell you the things that are in their head because it's weird. Like the man who would drive down the street and compulsively, if he hit a bump, had to take the block and go around and go and see if there was a body where he had run over somebody. Okay, that ain't rational, and he knows that. But it's stuck in his mind. You know people that, you've heard of people that have to go home sometimes miles to get back to their house and check the gas again or turn around. These aren't rational things. These are things that bind anxiety. It's from the ground up. It's not... Just talk me out of this thing. Listen, you probably turned the gas off. Won't help anxiety. I have to go and do the thing. Do you hear the difference? An anxiety disorder is not the same as fear. With children and adolescents, one of the first things is that if you've been chronically anxious, it's interesting to watch young and middle adolescents actually become aware of their anxiety because they didn't know that. You you only get to a certain point when you realize, wait, you can just speak to the waiter yourself? You just... Those, that guy just, I've never, my mom always did that. Or, or you don't have to get up and close that door and get back in bed. It doesn't have to be exactly the same. I didn't, you can go to a movie theater with stadium seating and walk right down there with all those people looking and walk in. There must be something wrong with me. You don't even know that you have that kind of anxiety. And that's a different thing. Do you understand this, the, from worry? And just like depression, anxiety even more so, The first thing that doesn't help is to talk them out of it. It doesn't do any good to say, well, buddy, you didn't run over anybody. You don't need to turn around. He knows that. You don't have to tell the person that uh, Jesus wants you to not worry. I know. I'm trying not to. I don't know how. It's a much more fundamental part of their personality. And again, what helps? 
One is words, being able to find the description and talk about it. Young children that are very anxious, it's helpful if you'll in fact identify for that for them. First observe it and then identify it. You know, sweetie, I noticed that today we canceled our plans because it's raining and you seem really upset every time we cancel plans. I think it kind of makes you feel anxious. Give her a word. Show what it is. With teenagers, I spend a lot of time encouraging them to tell one or two friends that you have real anxiety. You don't have to make a t-shirt out of it, but you do need to tell one or two of your friends. Do you know why? Because if you don't, people will not guess that your behavior is related to anxiety. They'll just think you're quirky. Oh, yeah, so-and-so, yeah. No, he'll say uh, he, he's not sure if he can go to the movie all the way up till the very day, and then he might or he might not. They don't go, I think he's anxious. They go, yeah, he's a jerk. That's what he is, or something. So you need to tell someone because, like so many things, depression for sure, but anxiety definitely. What's overlaid is isolation. You're alone in this thing. And that's the part that makes it more difficult. Words of it being able to express to someone else what you go through, and that being accepted, no one chuckling when you share the weird thing that you worry about, it's extremely helpful, it's extremely loving. It's a way of showing that, listen, I don't have that thing, but I promise, I got some stuff. And I can say that here because we're at church. I would ask for a show of hands of how many of you don't have major struggles but the problem would be the one of you or two that would raise your hand would all go, oh, let's, you're the worst. You don't even know you're having struggles. We are having struggles. This is a fallen world. You are not the way you should be. And all the healthy mental process isn't going to fix it. You need uh, Jesus. You need the Spirit of Christ in you and to, su and to surrender to that Spirit. So here's the thing, the last thing I'll tell you. Depression and anxiety, real depression and a real anxiety disorder, are you, these are chronic conditions. These are usually things that to one degree or another will plague someone all their life. What I think spiritually, you know, it's funny, people will go, well, Dr. Willis, we think this might be a spiritual thing. And my deal is, what is not a spiritual thing? Of course it's a spiritual thing. And you know what it often is, is a real red flag that helps someone to recognize where they are weak. Because these are weaknesses. And the funny part is, if you're very psychologically minded, that's almost offensive. What do you mean, weakness? But we're in the church. I'll tell you what I mean. You know what I mean. Uh, what I mean is 2 Corinthians 12. Do you remember the Apostle Paul who said he, he struggled with his weakness? And then, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I think Dave Henderson finished the same thing last week. This is part of who we are. Jesus is not here to be your Xanax tablet or to take care of your Prozac level so that you'll be all healthy and wise and we'll live a, kind of above everybody else. These are things that are among in many struggles that we all have that the Spirit of Christ uses to draw you to Him. 
You ever think of how weird it's going to be the first, I don't know, thousand years in heaven when we're all sitting around the campfire and the only thing we're going to talk, we'll just tell Jesus stories. You ever hear, if you ever think about how weird those stories are going to be? Yeah, well then, for about 10 years there, I made a lot of money and I was doing well, I was healthy, it was terrible. I didn't talk to Jesus at all. And then uh, my daughter died suddenly. Where is she? Stand up, baby. Yeah, and, and that, that drew me to him. Uh, she was actually, you know, assaulted by that. Here you stand up, buddy. Yeah, there you are. We're all, you know, it's, it's, it's because it drew me to Jesus is all that will matter. If it drew me in, and people will stand and say, you know, and I, I struggled with my depression, and I wasn't sure I wanted to live, and all I had was Jesus. And there, here, we're going to go, oh. And there, we're going to go, oh, that must have been so great, the time you clung to Jesus. So it's important in this place, above all, that we put our mental health our struggles emotionally, like anxiety and depression, in the right place spiritually. Because in some sense, these are uh, things that Jesus allows in our life to draw us into Him. And that's my prayer for us this morning, is that this is a place, I know your pastor wants this, that this is a place where people know that, no, no, we're not doing great. We're just, we just got Jesus. That's all I got. And those of you that are older in the faith like me, you know full well that half of wisdom is just getting tired, isn't it? You remember when you were young and, and you were going to improve in all these things by your own strength and you just end up at different points in your life going, you know, I, I got Jesus. I know he loves me. It's about all I got. And all of heaven goes, yeah, good for you. Now you're getting it. So this might, my prayer is that this would be a place where weakness, where these struggles are both recognized in a fellowship of the weak, but also directed to help us to gain what is the importance in our life, which is greater presence of the Spirit of Christ that I pray to God is in you. Because if the Spirit of Christ is not in you, you are lost. And all you must do is ask for Him to enter, to come in, to take that part of your life. And hes I, I can tell you, I know Him personally. He's a very gentle Savior. He will do it. So let me pray for us this morning that like those who struggle with anxiety and depression and all of the things that you have that may or may not be in that same category, that we would be drawn, that these things, these struggles would draw us to Christ and that through that we would be a light to others, especially in this place, who struggle with the same or even greater struggles than we have. So pray with me. Gracious Father, I thank you this morning. And Lord, I know that more than two of us are gathered here in your name, and therefore we welcome you into this place. Thank you that you have promised your presence here. And Lord, we confess this morning that you are enough. And we ask, Lord, that you would make us aware, both in ourselves and each other, of the areas of encouragement and struggle, that it would elicit in us prayer, and longing for you like we've never had before. We praise you for these struggles because we know that you are our final destination and our great reward. Thank you, Lord, for this place, for this church, for the compassion of the people here. I pray all these things in your son, Jesus' name.